นโมจะสาพกวาตัวระตัวสมาสัมบุทัสสังนโมจะสาพกวาตัวระตัวสมาสัมบุทัสสังนโมจะสาพกวาตัวระตัวสมาสัมบุทัสสังพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสัง
as not something ultimate is uh, really helpful, really significant part of practice. I can remember during my years in Thailand, there was uh, an occasion when somebody specifically asked Ajahn Chah if he would define the middle way. And somebody who was suffering pretty badly at the time and was looking for some relief um, from their suffering. And Ajahn Chah pointed out, he said, indulging his liking is one extreme, indulging his disliking and the other is the other extreme. In the middle, knowing liking and disliking is the middle way. Uh, I'm so grateful for that. that uh, in the middle way is talked about, of course, there's many subtle uh, permutations of understanding and, and aspects of the path, the Eightfold Path that the Buddha himself elucidated and the great teachers have explained in depth and subtlety and the different aspects of the Eightfold Path. And right view, right thought, right speech. And on. It's very helpful. However, if we just have that, then it's not necessarily um, something that we're going to be able to apply in our everyday life. Yeah. At least in my mind, I like something very simple, something very practical. And so that is simple and practical. When we get caught up in our liking, that leads to suffering. Guaranteed. We get caught up in our disliking, that leads to suffering. Guaranteed. <coughs> If, instead of getting caught up in either extreme, we stay in the middle with a quality of awareness which knows liking as a movement of the mind, knows disliking as a movement of the mind, then that's the path to freedom from suffering. And as I said, it's very simple, and it is very practical in our everyday life. And we can pick this up as a training, we can... Whether it's before we get caught up in liking and disliking, we can prepare ourselves with this understanding of the point of practice, the meaning the, of the, the teaching on the middle way, or once we've gotten caught up, we can apply a contemplation along these theme, this theme and, and say, all right, that's where the problem is. Right? I'll be more careful next time. And thinking about this particular theme of preferences and relationship to preferences, I was, I was reminded of... Uh, a situation some years ago where uh, it's about 25 years ago now I was I was living in Devon I was setting up the Devon Vihara um, near Axminster and I got word that um, a select two or three monks and nuns had been appointed to establish the definitive style of chanting in our community because we've been in England a few years after our time in Thailand. When we're in Thailand, well, we do the chanting the way it's done. But once we got here, well, there was, I don't know, some creative interpretations creeping in and different views and opinions about chanting, different preferences were being expressed in the style of the chanting. And so without uh, very much consultation, certainly I wasn't included in any consultation, uh, these two or three monks and nuns were appointed to establish the definitive chanting style. And I was not happy about that. I was not happy to not be included. I enjoyed the chanting, particularly two of the monasteries I stayed at in Thailand where I thought the chanting was very beautiful. Um, and I, uh, I would like to have seen our chanting 
include some of that style. However, I was not consulted, and so I was not happy. And then once I heard what the select few had produced, <laughs> I was even less happy. And definitely I was um, inclined to express uh, my disappointment that my preferences uh, were not pleased. However, fortunately at the time, well, there's two things that are interesting about that. One is that it coincided with my, my reading or hearing, I'm not sure, about uh, some of the history in this country uh, when the, the, some of the argy-bargy that went on between the Normans and the Saxons. And uh, who came first, the Normans or the Saxons? The Saxons were here first. And so, so apparently this, uh, the Saxons were running the monasteries and and the monks were used to a Saxon style of chanting and having Saxon abbots. And well, the way these uh, did these people did these things in those days, uh, the new king decided, well, you want to control the monks, so you put a Norman abbot in charge of the monastery, and then you get the monks on your side. And so, I guess this is what happened in this one big monastery. And and so the Norman abbot was put in charge, and so he, of course, wanted to change the chanting and the chanting style. We're going to be done with that Saxon style. That's so last decade, we're going to do this now, we're going to do this new, improved, Norman-style chanting. Well, the monks didn't like it at all, and they resisted, and they refused to do this new style of Norman chanting. So, um, I guess the um, the king was, uh, he had a fairly heavy-handed attitude towards this, and he got his archers to come into the temple and the, the cathedral, and they were standing around the top there with their bows and arrows, and and uh, during the chanting, the monks who refused to do the new Norman-style chanting got picked off with the arrows. I realized, thinking about it, that you know, attaching to your preferences uh, can lead to serious consequences. And so that's one aspect of it, you know, that when we get caught up in our preferences and our liking and disliking, you know, to really see, you know, look, look, this is... This leads to real problems. You know, this, this leads to a banking crisis. This leads to economic crisis. This leads to political crises. This leads to breakup of relationships. This leads to divorce. This leads to all sorts of suffering in our life. So getting being identified as that movement of the mind that we call liking and disliking, finding identity in that movement, and being lost in our preferences is serious. So that's an important lesson to draw from that little experience. And the other thing was that um, as the time went by, and of course I fitted in with the style of chanting and with only very occasional, very slight variation, kind of rounding off some of what I thought were the rough edges of the style, uh, I went along with what was being asked because that's, that's our training. And so the other interesting thing about that is that you get used to it you realize there's something that you really don't like. I mean, I really, really did not like the new style of chanting. But after a while, I said, well, so, I mean, you know, big deal. I mean, you get used to it. And that's the thing with our preferences. When our preferences are contradicted, it can seem a seriously big deal. But if we don't allow ourselves to be defined by our conditioned preferences, but we inhibit the that inclination to be born into liking, to be born into disliking, and to honor our commitment to the middle way and to simply know, all right, preference, liking, disliking. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, I definitely like that style of chanting. Yeah. Or I definitely like breakfast when it's cooked by this particular anagarika. He does a very good job of it. And if I have to have pickled, salty, fishy rice soup for breakfast, I confess I definitely dislike it. Yeah. But what's the point? What's important is not whether we have liking and disliking, but surely but how we have our liking and disliking. You know, to think we shouldn't have liking and disliking is, is very unrealistic. You know, these things are just conditioned. You, you grow up in Northeast Thailand, you, you, you like that. You grow up in this situation, you like this. Um, there's nothing wrong with the preferences. The preferences are just so. That's part of nature. But what we can change is our relationship to them. And so that's the training. And, and not just for monks, but householders also, if we... If we uh, don't appreciate this point, well, we can be easily swayed by, by the advertising, liking this, disliking that, and the political arguments, liking this person, this party, disliking that person, that party, or the, the powerful advertising there is around that we, we can easily be bombarded by. If we haven't prepared ourselves with a mindful perspective on preferences, we get tossed around by it in a very disturbing way. And so so it's a, a wise, skillful thing to do to make a project out of it. Not to demonize liking, but just to say, all right, I'm going to get really interested in liking. Just to see what is liking? What is disliking? Who feels liking? Who knows disliking? In what is this liking and disliking taking place? In what is this movement happening? Hmm. In our monastic training, as I said, with the, with, like with the chanting, example of the chanting, say, I don't like it, but we do it. Yeah, that's, uh, because the, the orientation of the training is towards being freed from being driven by our preferences. Yeah. Most of you, will have, all of you probably, would have noticed how we, uh, we have the practice, this uh, renunciate practice of sitting with, receiving our food in the one bowl. Yeah, and so uh, the, uh, the lay folk are very generously prepare all this lovely food, these nice curries and lasagna and spaghetti and pizzas, and they're all lined up there. And then over there, there's all this, there's this nice uh, mango uh, custard and and these nice cookies and these cream puffs and, uh, and the monks walk through the line and they put them all in their bowl together. And, and when the lay people see it, they sometimes complain about it. They don't like it. So I make the point of trying to explain that this is a practice that the Buddha encouraged. This is not just us being a little bit weird. You know. No question about it. Nobody wants their curry and their cream cakes mixed up together. No, nobody, as far as I can tell. However, the Buddha recognized that our being addicted to our preferences was so serious that he said, this is a good practice. You know, it's, it's going to get mixed up in your stomach anyway. And so you might as well mix it up before it goes. It's just, you know. And what you feel when you feel your preferences being contradicted, that's the training. That's the training. You just say, I don't want this. So 
means a lot of things in life we don't want. Like, for instance, dying. Probably when that's happening, we probably don't want it. Or getting sick. And when, when I get the flu, I really, I'm a real softy. I just do not like it at all. I really do not want coughing and can't go to sleep at night because you're coughing and, and sneezing and aching. And so uh, if we don't know how to to disidentify, to pull back from from our liking and disliking, then there is no chance of being free from suffering. So once again, it's not pretending that we don't prefer to have our curries and our cream cake separate. Of course we do. But the, from a practice perspective, the willingness to go against the preferences so that they come into relief. That's the point. It's not pretending we don't have them, but if we contradict them, we go against them, so then they come into relief and you see them. And similar to also the hierarchy in the monastery. You know, we have the hierarchy that the Buddha set up that uh, doesn't matter uh, whether you like somebody or dislike them, if they're senior to you, if they've been uh, ordained longer than you have, you bow to them. Now, I know when I first came across this, I really did not like it. It was something that I wasn't brought up with at all. And the fact that um, some of the monks who were senior to me had been in the military beforehand, and I was just recovering from my hippie adventures, you know, I was not keen on bowing to these guys at all. However, Ajahn Chah didn't make any allowance for our preferences at all. His encouragement was that this is the training and you just do it. But when you do it, then you watch that I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want. We watch the movement of mind that is the preferences. And that which is watching is not caught up in the preferences. So if we're always following our preferences, we're always giving ourselves, oh, I don't like bowing to that monk because, you know, I don't like the way he eats, he, he makes a noise when he eats, or, or I don't like that one because he's got coarse language or something. You know? Even if the monks, you know, are really sloppy in their uh, behavior, you know, still, if they're seen it to us, we bow to them uh, because it's a, it's a good training. And uh, again, there's a saying with a hierarchy in the monastery, you have the, the senior monks, and, and then you have the junior monks, then you have the samaneras and the anagarikas. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the anagarikas or the samaneras you know, are older than the junior monks. And the junior monks, because of the hierarchy, you know, you basically you listen to them. You know, the, the samanera or the anagarika, maybe even 10 years older than the than the junior monk, and the junior monk is giving up the work and just saying, I'd like you to do this. And, and if the, uh, the anagarika says, oh, no, I don't want to do that today, oh, no way. That's completely unacceptable. That's, if you do that, that shows you don't understand the basis of training. Of course, there are times when we don't like to do what we're asked or told to do. Of course we don't like it. But who doesn't like it? That's the point. I can remember a time when when I was in Chithurst and, and um, one of the junior monks, or maybe he was even a samanera at the time, uh, he was good at using woodwork tools and I wasn't very good at using woodwork tools. And I wanted to use the planer. The planer is a very powerful tool. You're familiar with the big table planer and you're putting some wood through it to plane it down. And so I asked, I remember asking this uh, young monk or samanera to show me how to use it. And as soon as he started showing me how to use it, I got all hot and bothered. Yeah. 
Who do you think you are telling me what to do? <laughs> well, because it grated with a view, a position I had of me. I'm senior. You, know, to you, you don't tell me what to do. And, and absolutely, we have to see that. So the problem is not the hierarchy. Some people think, oh, there's a problem with the hierarchy. Nothing wrong with the hierarchy. Nothing wrong with our preferences. Well, there can be some preferences which there's something wrong with, you know, like if you, you, know, you prefer to torture people rather than being nice to them. Well, that's, you know, that's a pretty unwholesome, dangerous preference to have. But we don't want to make the mistake for projecting onto structures and conventions like hierarchy or preferences responsibility which actually lies within us. And so I think this is a very important Dhamma principle that our liking and disliking are just movement of the mind. But our relationship to them really matters. There was a, a, a teaching that I remember, one of my favorite teachings that Ajahn Chah gave. There's two talks he gave, which um, are my, my super favorite top talks of Ajahn Chah. And uh, one of them is a question and answer session. Uh, a group of Western monks were sitting around talking to Ajahn Chah at uh, Wat Gornork, and it's translated and printed in both volumes of Seeing the Way in the front of that. But the talk I'm referring to right now is a, a talk that's printed in the Collected Teachings of Ajahn Chah, and it's called The Cobra of the Mind. And I was there for this talk when it was given. It was uh, an elderly English uh, woman who had seen Ajahn Chah on the BBC movie. I think it was the movie... Uh, the Middle Way, or The Mindful Way, The Mindful Way, a part of the Everyman series on the BBC many years ago now. And this uh, Quaker woman had flown out to Thailand. She was so moved by Ajahn Chah, she wanted to go and see him and listen to his teachings. She went there, and as usually happened, or as often happened, um, with guests, they got pretty ignored. And uh, anyway, she ended up staying in the nuns' community and not having very much access to Ajahn Chah at all. And the trip didn't go how she planned to, to go, and she's a bit upset about it. And anyway, it was time for her to leave, and so she came to say goodbye to Ajahn Chah. And she had, in those days, a little tape recorder, which was pretty radical, pretty modern, and uh, one of those uh, Walkman type tape recorders. And she came over with an American nun, Machi Kamfar, who could speak very good, uh, a very good local language, speak local language very well. And so she. Uh, she gave the tape recorder to Ajahn Chah and she asked Ajahn Chah, would you just say goodbye to Marjorie? Uh, Marjorie was the woman's name. Uh, so, and she wanted to have this on her tape recorder to take back to England to listen to. So instead of just saying goodbye, Ajahn Chah took the tape recorder and gave this most beautiful little Dhamma talk, I think about 20 minutes long. And, uh, and then I, um, I rushed off and translated because she was leaving and, and she went away with it and wasn't all translated, but most of it was translated. Part of it was was uh, kind of personal to Marjorie, but the essence of it was translated, and as I said, is printed in the collective teachings of Ajahn Chah. And in this, what he talks about is again about the middle way, and and how to find freedom in the world, not running away from the world, but finding freedom in the world. And he talks about the experience of living in the forest and dealing with uh, the cobra, the snake, muhao, 
and so the, this, the Thai word for, for cobra is muhao. And, and Ajahn Chai says, Arom tang song yang ni, arom ti chop chai kodam, arom ti mai chop chai kodam, kumun gap muhao. Muhao to me pit rai, muhao man antarai ma. And which is uh, saying that uh, the uh, moods that we have, arom ti chop chai kodam, arom ti mai chop chai kodam, that's the the likability, the dislikability, the liking and the disliking, these two movements of mind, he said, are like the, the cobra snake. He said, they're really poisonous. If you go and jump, man, it can kill you. If you grab it, actually the cobra snake can kill you. But if you don't grab it, there's no problem. You know, there are cobras in this forest. The forests are full of cobras. That's just the way it is. If you want to go around killing off all the cobras, you've got a really big job on your hands. It's like trying to not have any liking or disliking. Now, that's really, really difficult. In fact, I'd say it's impossible. But what we can do, and what Ajahn Chah was pointing out in this talk, was not to make a problem out of the muhao, not to make a problem out of the cobra snake, but to establish ourselves in the right relationship to the cobra snake, that is, a right relationship to our preferences, to our liking and to our disliking. So, of course, there's some things we like, and some things we dislike, some situations, you know, the weather, health, companionship. But it's important to establish our mindfulness very clearly between these two so that we're not defined by them. So we can, as I was saying, we can prepare ourselves in advance and protect ourselves so we don't get defined by them. When circumstances are disagreeable, we don't get necessarily pulled down as we might do otherwise. Or when the situation is really agreeable, there's less chance we're going to get intoxicated by it. So we can prepare ourselves in advance. And And then the other aspect is, of course, once we have gotten lost, how can we untangle it? And if we do get caught up in, in some mood, and, and it's definitely me, I do not like being told what to do by you, and I'm all hot and bothered and huffy about it, and you go back to your room and say, well, what's that all about? I say, well, that, that's what it's about. It's just basically, I didn't get my way. Yeah. The way things are is always the way things are. The Dhamma is always the Dhamma. Reality is like this. But when I don't get my way, then there's a conflict. When I'm not getting my way, then I get all hot and bothered. So where's the problem? The problem with the way things are, with the Dhamma? Or is the problem with me and my preferences? So then we can look and say, oh, right, that's the problem. There's the source of the problem. It's not pretending that I like being talked at in a disrespectful way, but that when I am talked at in that way, this disliking arises and then there's this taking birth and so okay next time be more careful the, uh, just yesterday I was preparing starting to work on the uh, a verse for the Dhammasakacha that I send out every two weeks every new moon every full moon there's a little verse from the Dhammapada plus a short commentary gets emailed out to uh, um, various people on the mailing list and so 
This week I chose the verse 302 from the Dhammapada and where the Buddha is talking about how, how difficult it is, the life of a monk, the life of renunciation and the challenges, how hard it is to find those challenges pleasant. And the challenges of sometimes being hungry and sometimes you know, relationship problems and not getting our way or whatever and sometimes cold, sometimes wet, sometimes sick you know, and not having all the resources and not being able to get your own way. Those challenges the Buddha was acknowledging are difficult. And, but he's also acknowledging how difficult the householder's life is. And often for householders, and particularly if you're committed to, to reality, to seeing truth, you're committed to practice and to not have any good company, you know, to not have friends who share your aspirations, how painful and difficult that is. So the Buddha was pointing out that you know, whatever our situation, you know, life can be difficult, but what really matters is that we don't make it any worse. You know, and the story, I looked up the story behind this verse and, and the incident that's reported whether it's actually what happened or whether it's apocryphal, I don't know, but the story that's reported is, is of a, a young monk. It was a, a full moon festival going on in the village near the monastery and, and he was standing out there in the forest monastery and looking in the distance and he could see all the lights and, and all the singing and dancing and people having a jolly good time and he got to feeling really sorry for himself and he was totally lost in the thought surely nobody's having as hard a time as I am and surely nobody's lot is as bad as mine and really lost in the mood of being caught up in, in his preferences you know? his preferences of course you know he was unenlightened he was still lost in his moods the preference was yeah, he wanted to be out there having fun as well uh, and so he's not getting his own way and so without the firm foundation in mindfulness, that's what happens. The mood comes up, agreeability or disagreeability, both are just so, actually, but the way we relate to it determines whether we're going to get pulled down by it or whether we're going to be able to learn from it. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>